I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to Gardening with the RHS and our annual book special. I'm Chris Young. This week we flick through the pages of some green-themed tomes as we look at our favourite gardening and nature reads from this year and a delve into the history of gardening through books. Joining me for today's literary extravaganza are fellow podcast presenters, I am genuinely in awe here, Fiona Davison and Guy Barter. We're going to be sharing, virtually of course, a homemade mince pie from the Youngs, with a little tipple of sherry we found in Guy's larder, topped off with the joyous aroma of some candied orange peel from Fiona's kitchen. Plus, we'll also be speaking to award-winning writer Robert McFarlane about his passion for the natural world and how we're forgetting the names of flowers and birds. Hello there, you two. Morning. Hello. So, Guy, let's start with you. What's your favourite gardening book from this year? Well, my favourite gardening book from this year is by Professor Dave Goulson of the University of Sussex. Now, Professor Dave Goulson is a very great expert on insects and bees in particular. And he also has a great concern about the welfare of bees and he has many devoted followers. So it's a great opportunity this year to read um, Professor Goulson's book called The Garden Jungle. It's a wildlife gardening book, and we're all wildlife gardeners now, I suppose. And his book is full of all the, the usual tropes of wildlife gardens and organic gardening, and many terrific episodes from Professor Goulson's own garden, which actually sounds rather a good garden. And Guy, what would you say is the kind of the overarching message? Because you say wildlife is really important. A lot of gardeners want and do garden with wildlife in mind. Is he just reaffirming that or does he actually give us some things to think about that we didn't know before? All of those things. He reaffirms them. He suggests remedies and also expresses why some things are more reliable than others. He also has a charming introduction to the, the lives of scientists and biologists, which are a lot more interesting than people might imagine. So <laughs> I'm going to give it to my mother for Christmas as well. It's all right. She never listens to our podcast. She'll never know. Well, thank you, Guy. That sounds like a good one and one that I should probably add to the list of books that I haven't read but should do. If I may, I've got a bit of a favourite book this year, but I'm a bit biased because it's an RHS title. And this is Your Wellbeing Garden. And I'm showing my colleagues on screen because we're all on Zoom today. And this is really all about, it's another science-based book, really, but it's all about gardens, plants, the magic they produce, and the reason why science is so important to understand gardens. There's more than 200 pages of wise words, of images, infographics, diagrams, photographs that prove 
what we all probably know, which is that gardens and plants are good for us. As I say, we might know it, we might believe it, but this book actually proves that there's science to say that actually if you're lying ill in hospital and you look at green rather than a grey wall, there's reasons why that is beneficial. There's reasons why listening to birdsong can lift your spirits and lift your mood. There's reasons why actually touching the soil and growing actually makes sense to our deep down parts of our brain. So it's all about the science of that, but it's actually presented in a really nice, easy to read way. The authors are lots of people associated with the RHS, including our own Director of Collections and Science, Alistair Griffiths, Mac Keatley, garden designer, Annie Gatti and Zia Alway, who are good science writers as well. And they've made it just it's such an essential reference point. And I think actually for future publishers over the years ahead, actually people are going to use this as their baseline book for proving why gardens and plants are good. And then we'll be able to make new books and further versions of it in the future. It's a bit of a steer to 1699 and I really do recommend it even if you dip in and out of it it's got so much information in there but Fiona that's enough about my choice what about you we've all gone a bit sciencey this time round because I've got a sciencey book as well I don't know what's got into us who knew Um, and Guy isn't the only person who can read a book by a professor I've got my own professor and mine's Italian oh well that is definitely a one up on uh, Guy can't even speak um, Italian Yeah, mine's a little rusty. I can do carbonara. But this is thankfully translated. And this is The Incredible Journey of Plants by Professor Stefano Mancuso from the University of Florence. It's a really very readable, very accessible book about how the strategies and techniques that plants use to travel without human intervention. I'm so used to reading about plant collectors Mm. in our collection. This is plants that move about without any kind of deliberate human intervention. Yeah, and he's very passionate about the fact that we need to stop looking at plants as if they're kind of inferior animals. They don't move like animals, they can't think like animals, they're not as intelligent. We should really think about plants as an utterly different type of life form with their own capabilities separate to and, and as fascinating and as important, if not more important, than the rest of the living world around us. And he's really good. He's got lots of lovely anecdotes. It's the kind of book you read and you drive everybody mad around you because you keep stopping and saying, I must tell you about oh, this. No. Did you know? Yeah. Like, My you parents know, always used of... to do that. They just read something from the paper. Oh, shut up. I'm watching Dallas I, yeah, or whatever it was in those days. <laughs> Will you just let me be? And if I want to read it, I'll read it. But no, you can't help yourself. So little stories like Charles Darwin being convinced that he you know, noticed that plants were very similar on different continents. And how did that happen? Mm. How did that fit in with the notion of God creating life? Did he create kind of subtly different but similar life in different parts of the world? Or did the plants travel And this is before the notion of tectonic plate movements and continents being joined together. So he thought that maybe seeds got in the sea, fish ate them, (laughs) and then birds caught the fish, dropped the fish, and the fish landed and the plants grew. And he did lots of experiments to try and prove this, including chucking a lot of seed into salt water in his house to see what happened. And he just got a lot of smelly salt water. 
Thank you, Fiona, because I also want to just ask you about some of the other things you've been doing in your spare time this year, fitting in your job <laughs> and you know various other things and living in a COVID world. You've been doing lots of gardening reading, as this month the RHS Lindy Library is hosting a special online exhibition called Gardening by the Book, a history of gardening in 12 books. I'm still stumbling over the word 12, but I'm sure you're going to tell us about them. So, <laughs> so what is this exhibition and uh, why did you want to do it? The reason I wanted to do this exhibition is we have a, a an awful lot of books. The books that tend to get a lot of the attention are the beautiful books, the big floras mm. and the herbals and the beautifully illustrated books, but less so the kind of practical gardening advice books. And yet when you really look at them over time, they tell you a story of how gardening has changed, but also how a lot of gardening has stayed the same over the centuries. And why 12 books? It's because I couldn't get it down to 10. I tried and tried to make it a neat and catchy <laughs> 10 and I couldn't. It is interesting how little gardening books have changed. You could read ones from the 18th century and you'd still make a very fair fist of gardening. And as uh, perhaps more modern techniques are sort of becoming frowned upon, you know, like using sort of modern fertilisers and pesticides because of their uh, side effects. Gardening is becoming more and more like 18th century gardening, admittedly of a much <laughs> wider palette of plants and much better breeding genetics available. But uh, yes, the gardening has changed remarkably little. It's amazing. It's exactly, so the, the earliest gardening manual we've got in English is The Profitable Art of Gardening by Thomas Hill, and that was first written in 1563. Wow. And this will be very familiar to you all. It starts with how to lay out your plot, how to choose your site. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Test your soil, look at your soil, pick it up between your thumb and your finger, rub it. Does it crumble? Does it stick to your thumb? What's the answer if my soil is, you know, not to my liking? Organic wow. material. <laughs> he calls it fattening the earth, but it's that's what he's talking about. He's talking about, you know, put on organic material to improve it. He talks about pests and diseases. He talks about right plant, right place. No. He talks about pollinators. He talks about planting for bees to encourage pollination. Are we going sort of full cycle? Are we going back three, four, five hundred <laughs> years as chemicals recede a bit and, and maybe some people are wanting to garden better with nature? Do you think we're going back or do you see that our changes and horticultural practices are on a, a trajectory of change? I think you can do see a lot of going back, but what you see is that's all based on science. Whereas when Thomas Hill is writing, he's harking back to kind of wise men mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. the Greeks and the ancient Romans and, you know, wise women say kind of thing. It was mm. much less. It was passed down generation further. Yeah, wasn't exactly. It? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, this sounds fascinating. I, I think we um, should all make sure that we look at this exhibition. How do people find it and enjoy it? It's one of many exhibitions that we have online now. That's what we've been pretty much doing all year is every month putting out a new exhibition. And if you put RHS Digital Collections into your search engine of choice, you will find the page on the RHS website and there's lots and lots of them. Every month we put out a new one. First, it goes out for RHS members only and you need to type in your little, little RHS number, but then it's released for everybody the following month. So Gardening by the Book goes live for RHS members, 17th of December, and then a month later, everybody can look at it. Fabulous, and we commend people to do so. Thank you, Fiona. Sounds great. We could babble on all day, I'm sure, about our favourite books, but I think it's about time we heard from someone with a different view about our shared environment, the best-selling author and Cambridge fellow Robert McFarlane. 
Robert is best known for writing about landscape, nature and language. His books Mountains of the Mind, The Lost Words and his most recent title, Underland, to name but a few, have won a host of awards. As well as penning beautiful and bold books, he's particularly concerned with the damage wreaked on the natural world by humans, as well as the language we use to speak about it. And that's why I'm particularly interested in hearing more from him. When a new edition of a children's dictionary left out several common words linked to nature, can you believe that they left out Bluebell, Conker and Kingfisher? Robert decided to take action. He wrote a series of poems or spells to bring them back into children's minds. With the artist Jackie Morris, he created the Lost Words, which ended up being used in primary schools throughout the UK. But let's start by hearing why he's so passionate about nature. When I think about where my passion for nature came from, I grew up at the end of a country lane. So, you know, there were horses and there were sheep in the field that we had and dogs and cats and so forth. But my mum loves to remind me that I never wanted to take the dog for a walk and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't show much interest in bird watching. And now I, now I spend my life teaching and writing about nature and landscape. But what I remember most, actually, is a plant. It's Rose Bay Willow Herb, this wonderful sort of weedy plant, really, which flourished on the bomb sites of London after the Blitz because it does very well on carbon-rich soil and in disturbed ground. And, and it grew all the way up the sides of the lane that I lived at the end of. And that glorious kind of pink flame that would burn over the over the verges in summer. And my brother and I used to strip the long stalks and use them as spears and swords and sort of throw them at each other and joust with each other. So that's my strongest early memory of life with a plant. In 2007, a very widely used junior dictionary, one of the ones that's found in all the primary schools and classrooms of Britain, really, announced or it was noticed that it had dropped a number of words from the dictionary. And they included words like acorn and conquer and bluebell and chestnut, catkin, all the way through to willow and wren by way of kingfisher and heron and otter and so forth. And there was a huge outcry about this at the time. The outcry wasn't really directed at the dictionary so much as at what had happened to all of us, what had happened to childhood and culture, because these words were dropped because the their use frequency had fallen. They, they weren't being read by children, spoken by children, encountered by children. So they, they were felt no longer to be relevant enough to make the cut for the dictionary. And a lot of people got angry with the dictionary, but that was quite the wrong direction to get angry or anxious in. Um, it seemed to speak of a of where we've come to in our relationship with modern nature in Britain, which is a drastically nature-depleted country. The statistics are clear on that. There are some wonderful success stories, the return of the otter, the return of the red kite, the rise of the goldfinch in our back gardens, but by many other indicators, we're losing nature fast. So that moment inspired us, Jackie Morris, the artist, illustrator, and, and me as a sort of poet or spellmaker to to write this book called The Lost Words, which took 20 of those lost words and sought to summon them back in, in word and art. Bluebell. Blue flowers at the blue hour, late daylight in a bluebell wood. Under branch, below leaf, billows blue, so deep, sea deep. Each step is taken in an ocean. Blue flows at the blue hour. Colour is current, undertow. Enter the wood with care, my love, lest you are pulled down by the hue, 
lost in the depths, drowned in blue. Bluebell is one of the spells from the lost, the first book, The Lost Words. That's been read at funerals and weddings both. And, um, and uh, it's a rather odd, slightly sinister poem in some ways, but also a very loving poem about that incredible blue hue that soaks a bluebell wood. You feel like you're walking in into the sea, underwater. And I, I love the thought that people find love, but also soft sadness in that spell as well. It seems to me vital that we give our young people a, a nature literacy, just a basic nature literacy. It doesn't mean learning the Latin names of every, every flower you meet, every plant you cross, every bird who flies over you at all. Good names are a kind of loving, I think. They're a kind of recognition, a, a meeting openly of the other species and the creatures that we share our, our landscapes with. This very basic literacy, knowing what a bluebell is, knowing what a kingfisher is, knowing that an acorn grows an oak. This is not a literacy that is widely shared anymore, actually, and it's true of adults as well as children. And that's not to shame either group at all, It's, but it is to say that it is a, a wonderful and a valuable and indeed a vital thing to know, especially in the, the age in which we live, the age of, of loss, really, of nature. And I, I think if it isn't known that an acorn grows an oak, if it isn't known that otters and kingfishers live in rivers, uh, that you might see this extraordinary tropical David Bowie-like flash of a blue-orange bird if you're by a, even by a city river, then something vital is missing. At its simplest, the aim of The Lost Words and The Lost Spells is, is just to conjure back that basic magic of nearby nature. Thinking about acorns and oaks, uh, for The Lost Spells, the, the little uh, recent book I wrote... A jay spell, and jays are these amazing planters of acorns. A, a single jay can plant thousands of acorns in one autumn. So I came to think of them as these sort of forest-making birds. So this is a um, sort of looping spell song to catch at that aspect of the jay's life. Jay. Jay, jay, plant me an acorn. I will plant you a thousand acorns. Acorn, acorn, grow me an oak. I will grow you an oak that will live for a thousand years. Year, year, fledge me a jay. I will fledge you a jay that will plant you a thousand acorns, that will each grow a thousand oaks, that will each live a thousand years, that will each fledge a bright-backed, blue-winged, forest-making jay. It's been a rough year. I think we can all, we can all agree that. Uh, nature, I think we'll all probably never forget that first spring when we were frightened as a species where we were locked into our homes to the little space that we had the curtilages of our dwellings and suddenly there was a spring like no other warmer and brighter than any other louder with birdsong than any other quieter with traffic noise than any other green became the sort of color of hope for me then watching the world burst back into life even as we were shutting down and furling up it was a reminder that processes were continuing. Nature became, whether it was the goldfinch family that moved into the garden or, or the apple tree that bore a few fruit, they, they became the anchor points, really, for me and, and I think for millions of other people. And that was shown in the appetite when the lockdown ended. Wow, we rushed. We rushed to the moors and the beaches and the, 
and the woods and the hills, sometimes making a mess of them as we went, but the, the hunger for nature was huge. Wonderful to hear there from Robert McFarlane. It really is so important that we hear people like him talk about nature, the environment and the landscape. I just wanted to share my experience this year of reading a book kind of loosely based on nature, and it's all about sheep, which I think will probably prick Guy's ears up most excitedly, being from a sheep farming stock. I've finished this book called The Lambs, and it's by an American called Carol George, and who I've actually met a couple of times. And she's the most calm, well-centred individual who I get terribly frustrated with about because I'm running around sweating and getting out of breath and thinking oh I'm late for a meeting and she's just kind of this this horizontal calm person a bit like kind of you know female equivalent of Guy Hmm. Um, (laughs) and so anyway so so Carol has written this book called The Lambs she took on a farm and she bought herself a flock of sheep and I don't know much about sheep except that I see them over our um, wall in our farmer's field next door but I do know her book has made me look at them quite differently that they have their own pace and their own movement and their own kind of rituals and what Carol's book has done it's a very personal memoir really about her relationship with the lambs as she calls them but it's also really much more about landscape and their relationship with seasons with landscape with movement with air with the weather And I think that sense of place that she creates, because she's a beautiful writer, is really strong. And it's just allowed me just to remember just stopping and pausing and taking in nature. And instead of looking at our screens and rushing around, we just have a moment. Her book has really done that. And and as I say, I've learned a bit more about sheep. And I still think they're pretty (laughs) smelly, but they look quite nice from afar. But she's actually reminded us of a way to look at the landscape. And actually, she follows the sheep around her fields. And what a fabulous way to experience a day by just following the sheep. It's a really lovely read. Right you two, I think it's time now, don't you, to get excited about some new publications on the horizon. Either ones you've got by your bedside that you still haven't read or those coming out next year. Fiona, share your thoughts with us. Well the book I'm looking forward to hasn't even been written yet (laughs) (laughs) and um, So I'm doing this entirely to ramp the pressure on the author to get on and finish it. It's a book about orchid paintings in our collection. It's Uh going to be written by our art curator, Charlotte Brooks. It's an RHS publication. She's hard at it as we speak writing. We're digitising lots of amazingly beautiful images from the collection for her for the publication. And the reason I'm most looking forward to it, apart from it's kind of a big tick off the to-do list, is that the orchid painting collection is enormous. And I, for the last kind of few years, it's mostly been in my head a bit of a headache. It's been one of those logistical things. We've got 7,500 orchid paintings, and I'm so used to thinking about them as a, a task to catalogue, to digitise, where are we going to store them and all this. And, and I'd just like to enjoy them for a change. So I'm hoping Charlotte's book is the gateway to remember that actually they're really lovely and interesting, not just a problem collection. Absolutely, and they will be beautiful. But just remind us, why do we have so many orchids painted? Why do we have so many orchid paintings? (laughs) We have so many orchid paintings because from 1897, I believe, give or take a year, in the late 1890s, the RHS started to commission life-size portraits 
of orchids that it gave an award to via its RHS Orchid Committee. And this is because orchids have been always, I think it's fair to say, a kind of rich man's plaything. They were a prestige plant and very expensive to buy. Because you had to have a hothouse to to grow them. Had a massive, yeah, hothouse, an expert professional gardener probably to look after your Mm. orchid collection for you. And... Orchid breeding, it's almost like racehorse breeding. And so they would want to capture an image of this and the pedigree of their orchid. And so they commissioned these portraits and then we took them and looked after them. And it still happens today. So there's been a professional RHS orchid portrait painter since the first one, who's Nellie Roberts, from the late 1890s. It's been a long, continuous string. The current RHS orchid portrait painter is Debbie Lamkin very skilled professional botanical artist from Ireland. And we get around 40 extra paintings every year through this process of the committee awarding an award and getting its portrait painted. Brilliant. Well, that sums it up beautifully. That's the reason why we need a book on it. One of the books I'm looking forward to getting stuck into is a book called On Sykes Lawn, The Garden at Plasmatexu. And this is a garden in the southwest of Britain, and it's been created by a chap called Alistair Forbes. It's been pretty well photographed. We've had it in The Garden magazine, and other magazines have been covering it as well. And it's a garden that is full of symbolism, philosophical references, Greek mythology, and much, much more. So basically a host of things that I don't know very much about. But what I do know is that it is an absolutely stunning garden. It's actually more of a landscape, and actually it it links into what we were talking about, nature and the environment earlier, because really you have to experience it. There's a kind of a pastoral movement to the garden, and you have to go around it in a certain way, and you experience different sculptures and different events and different planting. And this book, which is a, a hefty tome, I mean, it's a big old book to talk about one garden, but it's got so much about it. And, and Alistair Forbes is a, a very quiet, generous man, and he lives on his own in this garden, in this valley, and it's kind of an exciting but scary, singular, um, lonely place. But it's got this garden that is very special. And I visited it probably oh, 10 years or so ago now. And I got there one morning, very early in the morning, to do a photo shoot at a half past five, six o'clock in the morning. It was completely dark. And I got there and I sat by the pond. He was in the house, Alistair was. Just this opera music was just blasting out of the house the first thing <laughs> in the morning. And it was probably the most ex- moving experience I've ever had in a garden. Just to sit in a garden opposite of a reflective pond with this opera music coming out was just very special. So there's something personal for me there. I'm looking forward to actually trying to understand the garden a bit more on a much deeper level. The other book I just really need to plug, like Fiona, I've got to plug an RHS book. And this is um, one of the titles, which is going to be called How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. And for those uh, members who receive the Garden magazine, you'll know Sally Nex as one of our regular columnists. And she's put this book together, which is really about how to reduce your environmental footprint by gardening. So how do you reduce the use of plastics? How do you grow more food locally? And lots of tips and tricks to really try and reduce our environmental impact. What's really most interesting about this book is actually the amount of questions that it leaves as well as the answers (laughs) she gives us. Because as an industry, we don't really know our sustainability and our environmental issues as well as we probably should. But this is a great book. It's actually being printed in the UK to reduce transport miles. It's being printed in a single colour, so it doesn't use too many inks. So we've tried to look at the environmental impact of the book itself. So it's going to be a really great hands-on handbook of the book to use to help enthuse all of us to try and tread on our earth a bit more lightly but guy that's enough about my opinion what about you what is what's exciting you at the moment 
two books really there's one called orchard um a year in england's eden that i am reading at the moment which is all about an old herefordshire orchard and beautifully observed and i love an orchard i grew up in orchards this is a charming book a little purple in parts but also very well observed things that uh, perhaps i'd overlooked so I'm looking forward to that. And the other book that um, I'm looking forward to called Cucurbits, which is part of the CABI, which is the Commonwealth Agricultural Bureau International, a scientific organisation that publishes guides to crop plants. And it's all about the history, the science behind things like pumpkins, marrows, melons, cucumbers, very important crops, ones that I like to grow, ones that RHS members ask us about a lot. Unlike my older books, this will have an update on all the DNA research that's done that's cast such an interesting light over the evolution of these crops. So that's going to be really interesting. And, um, I'm going to put that on my list for next year. Good stuff. Uh, while I've got you both, is there a movement to more science-based publishing? Do you think we're even in the mainstream that actually we're getting to that stage? I don't know if it's anti-fake news, but actually that actually we're relying on science more and that we're, we're, we can use science as a basis for delivering a whole range of books. It doesn't have to be just on cucurbits, but it can be on anything. It could be well-being, it could be mindfulness, it, it can be anything. Fiona, do you think that's becoming more of the case? Yeah, I do. And I think that it's Actually, you could broaden it out a little bit. I think we're becoming more kind of mindful gardeners in that we're not just gardening for the aesthetic experience because we want a tidy front garden or we want... I think people are gardening for a reason and therefore they're looking for books which help them that reason might be to make a contribution to sustainability. It might be for mental health and well-being. It might be because they're gardening because they want to do something for their neighbourhood and then, you know... So I think we're looking for books that help us garden for a purpose more and science obviously then comes into that quite a lot you see a lot more kind of books which are reasons to garden books one of the things I love about this podcast, we do this every year and we all talk about books and it's always just so exciting because it's lovely to share our experiences. But what do you think over the next few years that people always love a bit of doom ladenness and say, well, actually, no one's going to be buying books and no one's going to read and no one can read and everyone just wants to look at pictures. What do you feel over the next few years? Is there going to be a trend of some changes or are we going to be doing books in a different way? Guy, what do you think? I think that the future of how to do it books possibly isn't that great because the web is filled up with ever more videos and web pages and but there is a real interest in as Fiona was saying why people garden why you do things what are the implications of doing this that and the other beautifully presented books of that nature have a bright future and of course there's the inspirational books there's still nothing quite like holding a, a glossy book of a beautiful garden in your hand well, this year, when we haven't been able to get out and about, mm. I think reading and going back to books of places you visited and revisiting them through the book and through the account, I think has got, had a special value for everybody. And I think I feel that there are less doom-laden announcements about the future of books and bookshops now because we're all getting into escaping through books because we haven't got the options we haven't had the options to travel and I think there's always a space for a beautiful book a book that's a lovely thing to have and so I think that the mechanical how-to book unless it's a sumptuous lovely thing or has another reason why you'd buy it I think that's possibly kind of got less legs but I think a lovely inspirational book beautifully illustrated with new insights and a real personality of the author there's always going to be space for that. 
Oh, lovely. I'd like to end on a bit of upbeat <laughs> excitement for the future. Thank you so much both. It's been lovely to see you. Sorry we can't do this in person as we normally do, but great to hear your passion and enthusiasm for the books that you're reading and looking forward to reading. What a great chat that was. That's it for this week. If you'd like to find out more about today's topics and choices, visit us at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time, from me, Chris Young, and my colleagues Guy Barter and Fiona Davison, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.